Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, your host here in Minneapolis. And this podcast is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative people. You can find all these interviews at ComposerQuest.com. This episode features staunchly independent composer Rick Soash. Rick has found over the years that he would much rather write chamber music for friends than be involved in any kind of academic or commercial composing. Yet even as an outsider composer, Rick has found his way onto public radio stations around the country. In our talk, Rick shares some of his tricks of the trade, and we'll also get to hear about his creative process behind his beautifully composed music. Before we get started, I want to give a special shout-out to Tillman Scheubel. He's a new Composer Quest patron down in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks, Tillman. And I have to say, when I was a kid, I would have given anything to go to Australia because I was obsessed with every kind of animal there. I always wanted a pet wallaby. Maybe someday. But anyways, thank you again, Tillman. If anyone else listening is interested in becoming a Composer Quest patron, visit patreon.com slash charlie. There are a few different donation levels, but one that I think is cool is if you pledge $2 per episode, I'll give you access to any of my own music that I share on the show including some rare demos from my collection that I will probably never release anywhere else. One of these songs that you can get will be premiering at the end of this episode, a special love song, so stick around. Now, let's get on to my talk with the talented Rick Sowash. Rick, thanks so much for coming on to Composer Quest. You're welcome. So... You call yourself an outsider composer, like yes. an outsider artist. Maybe you could kind of sure. explain that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, I'm an independent classical composer. I, I live by my wits. I'm not affiliated, and I never have been affiliated with any university or college. I don't have any commercial affiliations. I don't work for any company or anything like that. I'm self-employed, and I have been for 25 years, and I've uh, been able to support my little family and live uh, pretty well just uh, by doing what needs to be done. Uh, And it's also given me the freedom to write the music that I want to write, which is most often music that I'm writing for friends. So um, the question then is, I suppose, if you're an outsider composer and you don't have a salary from a university or a um, and you, you're not writing for a film production company or something, or commercials or, or whatever, then, then how do you do this exactly? And uh, figuring out the answer to that question has been what I've worked on for most of my life. You know, it's, sometimes I, I think it's easy, relatively speaking, to come up with a new tune. The hard part is trying to figure out how to convert that into cash so that you can pay your bills. <laughs> and that's what I've worked at with my career, getting the music up and running and out there where it can be used and where it can generate interest and ultimately some income for me so I can keep on doing this. I noticed on your website you said that you want to give your music away and sometimes that results in people writing checks to you yes so <laughs> right yeah i was curious right. how how does that work exactly yeah how does that work <laughs> well uh let me tell you um first i accept completely the responsibility for getting my work out there i don't expect anybody else to do that for me i don't look to a 
publicist or a, an agent or a publisher to do that for me. I have my own little publishing company, Rixa Wash Publishing, and what I publish are exclusively my own creations. I publish my own sheet music, both as hard copy and also in the form of PDFs that I send to people who are interested. And I also uh, publish or produce my own CD recordings, and I've made 14 of them so far. And uh, then let's take, for example, CDs. Let's start with that. When I want to produce a new CD of my music, and I have two of them in production right now, one thing I do is I send out an email to all my friends and fans, and what I say is, I'm getting ready to produce a new CD. Here's what's going to be on it. Here's what the cover looks like. Here are the musicians who will be playing. But I need to raise some money to do this, so would you please buy one or two in advance? Would you send me $15 to help me fund this CD? And usually I'm able to raise about 50 to 60% of the money I need to produce a CD through advance subscription sales. Then where does the rest of the money come from? Well, uh, I send out the word uh, here in Cincinnati where I live to my Cincinnati friends and fans. I send out an email that says, I'm producing a new CD of my music, but I don't have enough money to do it. It costs me about $8,500 each time I produce a CD. So I would like to come and paint your house for you. I'd like to come and paint your bedroom or your kitchen or your garage or your front porch or whatever. I charge $25 an hour. I've painted houses all my life. I'm good at it. I'm quick. I'm efficient. I'm honest. I'm your man. And you can tell your friends you commissioned a composer. And when they say, oh, great, what's he writing, a symphony, a string quartet? You can say, no, he's painting my kitchen. <laughs> and it really works. I do six or eight painting jobs a year, and that brings in the additional income I need to fund a CD. Once the CD is actually in existence, I send them out for free to 165 classical music radio stations all over the United States. And I send it with a cover letter that explains who I am and what's on this CD and why it would be of interest to their listeners and times of the year when they might want to play it. And uh, I have developed relationships over the years with a great many music directors at classical music radio stations. For example, in Minnesota, Minnesota Public Radio gives me a lot of airplay, I'm glad to say. And I know those people. I've met them and they know me. And so when I send them a CD, it isn't just someone from nowhere they'd never heard of sending them a CD. What's this? It's, oh, Rick's got another CD. Now, once the listeners hear the music, I get emails from people. Uh, hey, I heard your piece on the radio. How can I get that CD? Or I'm a clarinetist. I heard your clarinet concerto. How can I get the score? And I always offer to send them for free the full score and the clarinet part or uh, an MP3 of the music that they heard or whatever. And I also send them a list of my works for their instrument. And the list, by the way, does have prices on it. It's a catalog, and you know the music can be ordered. But I say to them, anything that you want on here, you know, you came to me, you expressed an interest in my work. So anything on here that appeals to you, let me know. I'll send you a free PDF and a free MP3 of it. And oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes we become friends through this process. And sooner or later, many of them will say, look, you know, you sent me all this stuff. I'm going to send you a check for 50 bucks. And I say, great, thanks. I can use it. I can pay my bills. But more than that, Charlie, what happens is like what happened last month. Some musicians out in San Diego got all interested in my music, and they worked up one of my pieces. And they said, why don't you come on out? We'll fly you out, you and your wife. 
We'll put you up in our ah. guest bedroom. We'll give you the use of our car for nine days. You can go to the zoo and, the, and see San Juan Capistrano and check out the whales spouting out in the, in the Pacific. And, and, you know, we, and you can rehearse with us and then see our concert. And so out I go. And I put my CDs for sale at the back of the hall, and I, I make new friends. And in that case, I didn't get any actual cash, but I'd almost been offended if they had. I, I was thrilled to get the chance yeah. to fly out and be in San Diego for nine days in the middle of this terrible winter. And, you know, yeah. that, that's what I mean by the product giving it away results in uh, th- these kinds of opportunities opening up. Yeah, that's really great that you have this system kind of in place. I kind of want to ask you about your CD production budget and mm-hmm. how that gets split up among okay. musicians, etc. Okay. I recruit my friends to play my music, and that means I ask them to attend, oh, usually four rehearsals. And I, even though it's chamber music, I kind of conduct them at first and coach them. And then I get them all together in a, in a place where we can record, not necessarily a studio. Sometimes we're in a church sanctuary or, or somewhere like that where there are good acoustics. And I have a recording engineer that comes. Uh, now, these musicians are friends of mine, but I, I do pay them a modest amount. I, I usually pay them mm, between $150 and $300, depending on how much I'm asking them to do. Once in a while, a little more than that. I also feed them. I always bring along food um, that I prepare myself. I'm a good cook. Mm. And I, I make right. a, if I have a rehearsal, there's always food involved. It'll be you know, a, a brunch or a light supper or something. And they really appreciate that. And, I, and by the way, I know it might sound a little corny, but I bring along cloth napkins and a tablecloth and a, a little ornament for the middle of the table. And, you know, nice. I, I make it a nice event, you know, and fresh bread from the bakery and cheese and olives and soup. And, you know, they love this. And if I invite these same people back, they'll, they'll be glad to do it because it's like a little bit of a party almost that we have. And getting the music ready is exciting. And, and then they record it, and I pay an engineer, a local engineer here in Cincinnati, and that's my biggest single expense. I have to pay him not only to be there for the recording session, but to edit and mix. And that usually runs about maybe $2,000, $2,500. I also pay a graphic artist friend to design the cover and the liner notes. And then the CD itself, the physical CD, is pressed at a plant where I print up 1000 and the cost is about $1,350. And then I also include in that the cost of sending them out to the radio stations because you have packaging and postage. And so that's how I get up to about $8,500 for producing a single CD. Yeah. Well, I really liked the music of yours I heard. Well, thank um, you. Thank you. Yeah. I try to make music that's accessible and pleasing. I, I don't think of myself as one who panders to the tastes of anyone in particular, but my own tastes are... I guess pretty conservative. I mean, the music I like is Sibelius and Vaughn Williams and Finzi, Copeland, Gershwin, Sousa. Uh, I love Sousa for what he is. He's the best there is, you know, for his little niche of music. And I try to write music that is music that I would like to hear. So it ends up being tonal and accessible. Yeah. One piece that I downloaded was Fantasia, your string quartet. Fantasia um, on Shenandoah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your composition process like for that one? 
Well, Shenandoah, you know the tune, Oh, Shenandoah, I love your daughter. You know, beautiful, beautiful. Maybe the most beautiful of all American folk tunes. That's a tune that has been almost a recurring theme in my whole life. I'm, I'm 64 years old now. I first heard that tune uh, when I was 12 years old in the film score for How the West Was Won, a big Cinerama classic Western film that came out in 1962. And I was thrilled by that movie. Oh, I loved it. I have to say that watching it now as an adult, it's pretty embarrassing. But, <laughs> but when I was 12, I loved it. And there's this great scene when they're going down the river on a raft and you hear this male chorus singing Shenandoah in the background. I mean, I was just lifted out of my seat in the movie theater by this. Well, that tune stayed with me. I loved it. It's a beautiful shape. I've used that motif many times in my work. Um, then my wife and I uh, had our first child, a daughter, and we named her Shenandoah, partly after that beautiful song. Eventually, I was invited to write a piece for four cellos, and I, I thought, what a rich and beautiful sound. So I conceived the idea of writing a, a Fantasia on Shenandoah for four cellos, which I did, and they played it, and it was splendid, but I missed the high string sound, so I made it into a piece for string orchestra. And last April, in Washington, D.C., the strings of the orchestra affiliated with the U.S. Army Band did the premiere of the string orchestra version of Fantasia on Shenandoah. I don't know if you know the um, Beethoven um, string quartet, the first of the Rasimovsky quartets. It's in F major, and it starts out with a cello going da 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 da. Well, it struck me that that tune is a little bit like Shenandoah, and then I thought, what if that tune were Shenandoah? What if Beethoven had taken the tune Shenandoah? instead of that original tune. And then I started thinking, what if I did that? Whoa, you know, what would that be like? And, and that is actually how the piece came into being. Cool. Don't you find that a lot of times it's, it's like asking yourself a question is what gets a piece started? Like, wow, I wonder if I could do something like that, you know, or what could I do with that musically, you know, whatever it is. And then you, you all of a sudden you start to get ideas, you know? Yeah. Well, that kind of brings up a fan question here for you from Mike Rohr, a friend of mine, who played in the Heartland Symphony Orchestra, your piece, The North Country Suite. Um, he was kind of wondering if you've ever done anything just crazy or off the wall, either harmonically or experimenting with different ways to use the same instrument. Well, I think neither you nor Mike have heard some of my more experimental pieces. Now, I've never written anything that's really avant-garde, no. But it's more a question of the emotional content. Most of the time, the emotional content of my music is optimistic, affirming. It's sunny days, fresh air, flowers coming up, babbling brooks, uh, you know, laughing faces, uh, those kind of things. But I have occasionally written pieces that are dark and angry and lamenting. Sometimes current events 
will take such a dark turn that I feel compelled to write something. Or it isn't necessarily even a dark turn. Uh, when the Cold War ended, when the Soviet Union fell apart, that was the biggest event of the second half of the 20th century. And there's almost no music about it. Hmm. Well, I wrote a piece. It's a rhapsody for cello and orchestra, although it's also available for cello and piano. And it's called World Enough and Time. And it is reflections on the end of the Cold War and a feeling of hope for the future, but also great apprehension whether or not this can hold and what this uncertain future will be like now that the Cold War is over. Will we really be able to implement an era of peace? And of course now, looking back from the perspective of the present moment, we, the answer has to be no. I mean, look what we did instead. You know, the world is, <laughs> is still at war. Look at Syria or what's maybe about to happen in Ukraine or what, what happened with us in Iraq and Afghanistan. So mm -hmm. sometimes the music can go th those directions. But you might not be surprised to hear this. Though those are not the pieces that get aired on the radio stations, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I wrote one piece of very much of a protest against the war in Iraq. And I wrote it right at the start. Well, if you remember what happened to the Dixie Chicks when they spoke up against the war and against President Bush at that time, they were really death threats and everything. They were yeah. blackballed, you know. And I wrote this piece, this hair-raising piece, an angry piece about how wrong it was I felt to enter this war. And I pretty much knew that I couldn't get public radio stations to play it because they depend upon their listeners for support. And 70% of the U.S. public at that time was all in favor of going to war in Iraq. So they weren't going to play that on the air, you know. Yeah. And I thought, well, at least I could record it. And you know what? When I went around to musicians, my old my friends... And once they got what the piece was, they didn't want to play it because they didn't want to get in trouble. They didn't want to have the Whoa. Dixie Chicks yeah. thing happen, you know? And a lot of them, they're trying to make careers. They're trying to get ahead in academe or whatever, and they didn't want to rock the boat. So they just hmm. kindly said, mm, I think we'll pass on that one, you know? Isn't that interesting? It, it is, especially <laughs> considering it's instrumental music. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, the idea behind it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But... They would have said, you know, if it's just piano trio number 13 in E-flat minor, then... That's one thing, but if you're going to, you know, use it to rant and rave against President Bush, then that's not for us, you know. And I had yeah. to be honest with him what it was, you know. I wouldn't want anybody to do anything under a false assumption. Right. So. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you quoted things and thought in terms of Beethoven, and I was listening to Sunny Days for Vivo. Is that a quotation from Peter and the Wolf? It sure is. Good for you. Okay. okay. Yeah, I was trying to it figure sure this is. out with my girlfriend. Yeah, good too. for you. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of disguised, you know, and it kind of goes a different direction and so forth. But that was definitely the starting point. And there's a reason for that. It's not just a gratuitous theft. That piece was written for a, a trio of Russian-Americans who were looking for a piece they could take back to Russia and play on a concert tour. And they had the happy idea of inviting me to write a piece that would be in an American style, but using Russian folk tunes, or at least music from Russian classics. Mm. And so I took a handful of Russian folk tunes and the cat 
theme from uh, Peter and the Wolf. Bum, bum, ba, bum, bum, ba, bum, 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 ba, the cat tune. And then in my little piece, I, I changed it to go, piece i was curious about is your piece a little breakfast music yes with movements called orange juice french toast <laughs> eggs and bacon honey on english muffins and a variety of herb teas <laughs> yes right where, what, where did that come from <laughs> uh, well i have four friends who played there were two married couples one couple they played violin and oboe the other couple they played violin and clarinet and they hung out together a lot and liked playing together, but there's no literature for two violins, oboe, and clarinet. So they asked me, well, yeah, would you write, if you wrote a piece for us, we could play it, you know? And I thought, wow, that's great. Four treble clef instruments, no bass, you know? I mean, the clarinet goes down to a low E, but that's, that's not really a bass instrument either, you know? So I thought, well, here's four treble clef instruments. So the subject matter kind of has to be light and sparkling and fun and... I was thinking about Eine Kleine Nachtmusik, you know, a little night music. And I thought, well, what about the next morning? You know, what about a little breakfast music for the next morning? Uh, pretty soon I started thinking about making a piece that would celebrate things we eat for breakfast. And also, I thought, I have to admit, I thought right away, radio stations will play this piece during the morning hours, you know. Hey, <laughs> uh, nice. Because that's what you have to think. I mean, if I had named the piece Sweet in C Major or something, it would never get aired. But a piece yeah. called Orange Juice at 7 a.m. is perfect, you know. So all over the country, in the early morning hours, the, those movements get played on classical music radio stations. Uh, I might add, by the way, I wrote that piece when I was about 26 or 27 years old. And I, I mention that because one of the great things about classical music is that it's evergreen. It doesn't get old. Classical music, or call it what you will, it doesn't age it doesn't have that thing that happens with popular music where it's it sounds so 80s, you know, or, or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, th there's nothing 70s about my little breakfast music. You would never be able to guess what decade it was written in if you heard it on the radio. Right. How did the different movements represent the food? Did, okay. Were you thinking that way when you are composing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, deliberately, yeah. All right, let's start with orange juice. It, we use it as a wake-me-up, you know, kind of a little bit of a shock uh, to, to get your, your eyes open, you know. Uh, it's, that's why we drink it first, I think, in a meal. So it, it had to be a, a bit fanfare-ish, a bit of a lift. It had to go up. The musical line had to go up. Also, orange juice is a little sour, a little biting, and so it has a, a, a gentle dissonance throughout the piece. I could go on. There, there's a kind of bright sunshine morning on the ranch feeling to that music. It's reminiscent of Copeland, um, Rodeo, and Billy the Kid, and the Red Pony. 
And that's just for orange juice. That's just the first movement. <laughs> Maybe from that you can get an idea of how I think. You know, if a composer looks at orange juice, holds that glass in the hand, it's cold, it's biting, it's bright. How could I express this musically? And that's often how I work. There's nothing French about French toast, you know? The French don't call it that. But to us, somehow, this word French is attached to French toast. So I made that movement deliberately French-sounding. I wrote it very much in a manner of Poulenc, Mio, Lécis, you know, those composers. Hibert, that have that French wind sound. Let's take English muffins, same thing. They're not particularly English, but for that movement, I went with a Vaughn Williams sound. Um, definitely an English jig in the middle section. And then, you remember, the, the movement is actually called Honey on English Muffins. So it establishes a very sweet tune. It's in F major. It's sticky, sentimental, like honey. And then the honey gets poured onto the muffin because the sweet music overlays the English jig. then to take uh, bacon and eggs. For bacon, I, I took Copeland uh, because I think of that as like with the tender land, you know, he wrote that opera about the Midwest and this lusty celebration of Midwestern farm life. Here in Cincinnati, the hog was the making of this city. Uh, we were the great hog-producing and processing capital of the United States here in Cincinnati. And so that's for the bacon. And then for the eggs, I took this idea out of medieval literature. People in the Middle Ages in Chaucer's day believed that raw eggs were an aphrodisiac and good for your virility. And so they figure in Chaucer in real funny ways in the Canterbury Tales, people who are, you know, they'll be frantically sucking eggs um, <laughs> at certain points in the story. Uh, enough said about that. But for that, I made a medieval-sounding kind of music. In the same movement, then, you have a Bacon Copeland sound and an eggs medieval sound. And at first you would think those are almost irreconcilable opposites in the musical world, but I found a way to make them work together. The final movement is a variety of herb teas, and that's simply a theme in variations on a pleasing aromatic tune.
you're a storyteller by nature, it seems. And <laughs> how does that, that <laughs> well, yeah, how does that influence how you compose, do you think? Uh, I think it's really the other way around. I think being a composer influences how I tell stories. A couple of years ago, I wrote a, a comical autobiography. And in writing that book and in telling those stories, I used musical devices, including uh, motivic development and theme and variations and quotation, allusion, those devices that we use in composing, I've found that they shape the way I tell a story. For example, if, um, if something is going to be important later in the story and you want to plant seeds of suspense that point to it, that is a little bit like having a fragment of a theme peeking around the corners, so to speak, and then each time it gets a little more emphasis and becomes stronger and then finally emerges as a, a real theme, a storyteller would do that with an image, where a composer would do it with a cluster of notes. Hmm. Yeah. One thing I'm curious to ask you about, I was reading your resume, which is a unique resume. You said that you went to a prestigious American school of music, which you hated <laughs> so much that you refused to name. <laughs> how much did that experience influence how you go about composing now? Well, almost not at all in any positive way. Um, here's my story in a nutshell with regard to the education. Uh, when I was in junior high school, I had this wonderful pair of music teachers. One directed the choir at our school and the other directed the band. And they both got me started writing music. And I ended up learning truly 90% of what I needed to know to write music, I learned from those two guys. But I didn't know that. I thought at the age of 18 that I had only learned about 10% of what I needed to know and that I would get the rest by going to college. And so I naively went to college expecting that I would, now I would get the real stuff. And I didn't realize that I already had the real stuff. And so I was baffled by college. It was, it was a waste. It was a waste of time and money. And I was very frustrated. And I, I quit twice. But I went back both times because my parents, who had come through the Depression and World War II, were just, they had their hearts set on their son getting a college degree. And I was the first in my family ever to get a college degree. But I couldn't make them understand what a waste of time it was. And they thought that I was ungrateful, but I, I wasn't ungrateful. It was just a bunch of nonsense and, and, <laughs> I, and stuff I either already knew or had no use knowing. I didn't need to know about uh, Stockhausen and the avant-garde, because that wasn't where I was going to head. So, I mean, that place just, you know, was a factory that took our money and burned up our time and uh, patted us on the head and gave us a diploma, and out we went. So uh, I used to tell people where I went to college, and they'd say, oh, well, no wonder you're a good composer, you know, and like, as if, you know, as if, as if that had anything to do with it, because it didn't have anything to do with it. And also, I don't want people to judge me by where I went to college. If people like my music, I want it to be because they like it, not because they're impressed with where I studied or who I studied with. Hmm. That is a very interesting perspective. <laughs> what advice would you give, though, to someone who's out there thinking about majoring in music, though? I mean, you lucked out kind of with your junior yeah, high, high I school. Did. I did. I mean, I personally, I had a great experience in college. I went to a smaller college at St. St. John's here in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, My daughter, by the way, went to St. Olaf, and she oh. had a great experience, too. Uh, no, I, I don't mean to say that it's impossible to get a good experience in college. I, I just didn't have one. Right. 
you can't teach somebody creativity. And anybody who pretends they can teach it is a charlatan. Now, what you can teach is harmony, counterpoint, music history, orchestration. But even there, the best instruction I've had comes from and continues to come from good musicians who are doing my music and who show me what isn't working so well, you know, or what would work better. If you wrote it like this, it would sound so much better, you know, and they go, and I go, wow, how'd you do that? I gotta get that into the score, you know, or uh, like a choral conductor that will take some time and say, this is, I like this piece very much, but there's one section isn't working and here's why, you know, I learned from that. Um, but you gotta be humble enough not to just insist on that they, they do it the way you wrote it because you know best because you don't know best necessarily. You know, they're the ones that have to make it work. Mm-hmm. Also, I would say, you asked me what I'd say to a young composer, find somebody who's doing it in a way you can admire sincerely and then go to that person and say, teach me what you know. Ask them questions. And maybe it's just a phone conversation like this one we're having right now or maybe you show up once a week for a year and have lessons. I have an intern that I work with with whom I have that kind of a relationship. And I hope he's learned a lot of valuable stuff. And I don't even charge anything. I'm glad to share because people shared with me along the way. Things come to us for free. We should pass them along for free. Yeah. Well, I have one other fan question here from Mike Rohr's mom, Jeannie Rohr, who also played in the Heartland Orchestra. I remember them both, yeah. Tell them I said hi. (laughs) All right, I will. Yeah, so... Jeannie was asking, of all your pieces with the clarinet, what is your favorite? Oh, I definitely have a favorite. It's my concerto. It's probably my magnum opus, probably my the best piece I'll ever write. It's a full-blown major concerto for clarinet and orchestra, beautifully performed and recorded by a Baltimore clarinetist named David Drosinos with the St. Petersburg Symphony. I wanted to ask you one last piece, Sanctuary at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. I really liked that one and the space you gave it. Oh, good. What was your inspiration for that? Well, I am a church-going guy. I, I sing in a church choir uh, at Mount Auburn Presbyterian Church here in Cincinnati, and it's a beautiful old sanctuary, just gorgeous. And, well, you know, when you're in church, it's always Sunday morning at 11 a.m., But it occurred to me that the church is there, even at 3 a.m., and we're sound asleep. And what would it be like if you were feeling really uh, troubled and unable to sleep and perhaps even in some kind of danger, and you made your way to sanctuary, a safe place, 
during a dark, dark night, all by yourself, what would you be feeling and hearing? And I imagined the sound of distant church bells ringing at 3 a.m., and that's in the opening chords of the piano. And then when the solo instrument comes in, it's like that's the person who's there at 3 a.m., uh, lonely and vulnerable and troubled, but not without hope. Thank you so much for coming on to Composer Quest. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, likewise. That does it for my talk with Rick Sowash. For more of Rick's music, visit sowash.com, spelled S-O-W-A-S-H. If you'd like to receive a weekly free MP3 from Rick, along with the story behind it, shoot him an email, rick at sowash.com. And if you heard a specific piece of music you like in this episode, check the show notes at composerquest.com slash sowash. You can always get in touch with me, either email me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Now it's time once again for... This past weekend marked the two-year anniversary of when my girlfriend Maya and I started dating. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard one of her many guest appearances, and you know how awesome she is. So, I wanted to write her a song for our anniversary. And I should warn you that my lyrics are a little bit cheesy, but hopefully in kind of a funny way. I was thinking back to episode 57 with Brian Laidlaw, where we were talking about how love songs are destined to fail because nothing rhymes with love. So I toyed around with that idea during the bridge. Now, without further ado, I will leave you with my song for Maya called Rhymes With Love. I've got a million things to do But I'm just gonna sit here till I finish this for you Until I find the words I'll play these chords on in this loop Cause I wanna sing what you mean to me But I've got too much on my mind To write a song encompassing these two years of our lives The mountain that this song should be just leaves me paralyzed Cause I wanna sing what you mean to me But every cliche that I write Bounces off the walls like hollow echoes in the night A pale reflection destined to sound trite So if I seem too mimetic, I'm just trying to be poetic Because you are the one I love You're the girl I've been dreaming of Count on stars above You will always be my dove Though we travel sea to sea I'd be happy anywhere where you and I could be 
world just seems more colorful when you share it with me. And I wanna sing what you mean to me. I wanna sing what you mean to me. I just wanna sing I love you. I just wanna sing I love you. I love you.